AFF on Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast is boarding. Step on board for the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Your captain, Matt Graham, now invites you to sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. G'day and welcome to episode 96 of AFF On Air. It's the 29th of October 2022. Coming up in the episode, I'll chat to Ron Hack, a recently retired pilot who began his career in the Air Force and then flew for Qantas for 24 years flying Airbus A330s and Boeing 747-400s. But first, let's begin with a roundup of the latest Australian airline travel and loyalty program news from the past fortnight. And Virgin Australia, to start with, has found a way to make the middle seat just slightly less terrible, launching a middle seat lottery with some excellent weekly prizes up for grabs over the next six months. Anyone sitting in an economy middle seat on a Virgin Australia flight who's an Australian resident aged 18 or over and a Velocity member is eligible to enter the lottery within the Virgin Australia app up to 48 hours after flying. This week's winner will receive United Premium Economy flights to the USA and a six-night Virgin Voyages cruise. Next week's winner will get Platinum Velocity status and a million frequent flyer points, and there'll be different weekly prizes for the next six months while this promotion's on. It's all part of Virgin Australia's new wonderful flying campaign. International airfares have certainly been high lately, and in fact, our Qantas business class fares on some routes are now selling for close to $30,000 return during busy travel periods. Now, there are new, numerous reasons for this, high fuel prices, Russian and Ukrainian airspace issues, and a lack of competition from Chinese airlines are all contributing factors. But the main reason is a lack of capacity in the market. Demand has returned, but supply, so the number of seats available, has not yet kept up with that. After several years of significantly depressed demand, airlines are now making hay while the sun shines and cashing in on the mismatch between supply and demand. But the good news for travellers, and the bad news for airlines, is that these prices won't stick around forever. In a market update released earlier this month, Qantas said that yields from international markets are particularly strong, but are expected to moderate as Qantas and other carriers steadily increase capacity. In other words, Qantas acknowledges that its international airfares are much higher than usual at the moment. But Qantas predicts that it will have to reduce its airfares progressively as more seats are added back into the market and as more airlines restart flights after COVID. And there is some good news on that front. More capacity is coming back into the market from this weekend, with tomorrow marking the start of the IATA Northern Winter scheduling period for this year. The cutoff between the two scheduling seasons is often used by airlines to add new routes or update their schedules, and from this weekend, around a dozen new or returning international routes are coming back into the Australian market. This includes Qantas flights from Sydney to Santiago, which finally restart tomorrow. There's also AirAsia X flights from Melbourne and Perth to Kuala Lumpur, Jetstar from Sydney to Seoul, United from Brisbane to San Francisco, Melbourne to LA and Sydney to Houston. Air Mauritius will relaunch its Perth to Mauritius flight, and Virgin Australia will next week resume flying to Queenstown in New Zealand. And Qantas is also about to increase its uh, Sydney to Tokyo flights from three times a week to daily. Speaking of Tokyo, Virgin Australia now has around five months left to launch flights into Tokyo's Haneda Airport, or risk losing the lucrative Haneda Airport slot that it won in a fierce contest with Qantas in 2019. 
Virgin had planned to start daily Brisbane to Tokyo flights in March of 2020 in partnership with All Nippon Airways using Airbus A330 aircraft. But Virgin has since retired all of its long-haul aircraft, so there's no more A330s or 777s in Virgin's fleet. And in fact, it no longer has any planes suitable for flights between Brisbane and Tokyo. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean Virgin is ready to give up its lucrative Haneda Airport slot. In a submission to the International Air Services Commission in June, Virgin said it had firm commercial plans to launch services to Tokyo at the end of March 2023. But without any planes uh, to be able to make that route, how will they do it? There have been a few different rumours flying around, pardon the pun, about how that might happen. One very, very unlikely option is that they could run a Boeing 737-700 or 737-800 from Brisbane to Tokyo with a stop in Guam. A slightly more likely scenario is that they could use uh, their new Boeing 737-8 MAX aircraft that are due to arrive from early next year to fly direct from Cairns to Tokyo with a slightly reduced payload that would technically be within the range of a 737 MAX. Another option could be to wet lease a wide-body jet from another airline. Virgin will have to make a decision soon, and if it is to launch flights to Tokyo, it'll probably want to start selling tickets with a reasonable lead time, so watch this space over the coming months. Qantas has cancelled the planned launch of direct Perth to Jakarta flights at the end of next month and announced that its new Perth to Johannesburg route, which is due to launch next week, will only run for five months. It's apparently due to issues with the processing of inbound passengers from Indonesia and South Africa by customs and border and biosecurity staff in Terminal 3 of Perth Airport. Meanwhile, Qantas has just scrapped its planned reintroduction of the Airbus A380 onto the Melbourne to Los Angeles route from December, which also means the loss of first class on that route. It's also pushed back its planned restart date for Sydney to San Francisco flights yet again, this time from March until May 2023. And one of the four weekly flights to San Francisco has also been removed from the schedule, meaning that flight will now only run three times a week. Air New Zealand has stopped selling tickets to Perth, Tahiti and Hawaii that don't include checked baggage, meals and in-flight entertainment. Air New Zealand removed those benefits from its cheaper fares en routes to Australia and the Pacific Islands in 2010 when it launched Seats to Suit. Many other full-service airlines have also since introduced cheaper, basic or light tickets that exclude certain benefits such as checked baggage, food, seat selection or perhaps frequent flyer benefits. But Air New Zealand is now bucking the trend, reintroducing full-service on some of those medium-haul flights following customer feedback. Air New Zealand's other flights to Australia will still have seat and seat plus bag fares available for sale. Qantas's Hobart call centre is reportedly hiring and training more staff, as well as switching over to a new reservation system called Armadeus ARD. More staff in Hobart can only be a good thing for those of us who do need to call Qantas every now and again and want to get good service. Marriott Bonvoy will stop giving 25% bonus points when you transfer 60,000 Bonvoy points to three of its around 38 different airline partners, being Delta, American Airlines, and Avianca, and that change will take effect from the 31st of October. The 25% bonus does still apply when transferring to other airlines. And Air Canada's aeroplan program has changed its terms and conditions to specifically say that it may suspend or terminate the accounts of members who, quote, 
engage in a behavior of excessive use of the welcome bonus offers, unquote, that are given when you take out a new credit card. This is quite possibly the first time any airline has moved to try to limit the number of credit card sign-up bonuses that its members can take out. Most airlines would, in fact, be quite happy to churn through credit cards because they make money from selling points to all those banks. This change should only affect Aeroplan members living in Canada, but it will be interesting to see if any other airlines follow suit. That's what's making news on australianfrequentflyer.com.au this fortnight. You can stay up to date between podcasts by subscribing to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette to get the latest Frequent Flyer news straight to your inbox for free every Monday and Thursday morning. My guest today is a man who flew aircraft for 49 years, beginning his career in the Royal Australian Air Force in 1970 and retiring in 2019 as a Qantas 747 First Officer. Some of our AFF Forum members also met him last weekend at the Newcastle Gathering where he led a tour of Fighter World for us. Ron Hack, welcome to the AFF On Air podcast. Uh, thanks, Matt. appreciate uh, the opportunity to have a chat to you. So I've had a few pilots as guests on this podcast in the past, and I've always been interested to learn why they got into a career of flying. So I want to start by asking you the same question. What got you interested in flying? <laughs> uh- well, as a young kid, he, uh, eight years old, I think, I, I happened, to, happened upon a uh, boy's own journal, which showed, a, uh, I think, a Sabre aircraft on the tarmac with a pilot carrying his helmet out to the aeroplane, and I thought that looked pretty cool. So that sort of uh, piqued my imagination. And then uh, years later on the farm, we used to watch uh, a four-ship of aeroplanes fly overhead at high-altitude uh, contrailing, and I thought, I've got to get up there. I'd love to be up there. And, and to appreciate what they can see from there, you know, that sort of stuff. So that was it. So how did you take that dream into reality? How did you get started with flying? Well, basically I just, uh, well, I graduated from high, from high school at, in 1968, and I was only uh, 17 at the time, so I was a bit too young to join the Air Force. Um, and I was about right for Qantas, so I applied for Qantas as a cadetship, but uh, they knocked me back, probably because I was very immature. And um, I kept applying for the Air Force, and eventually, uh, I think largely because Vietnam was still operating, or we were still sending people up to Vietnam, they were recruiting quite heavily, so I was able to get a Guernsey, and uh, so I joined the Air Force. Uh, we started at Point Cook in April 1970, and we started with about 44 on the course altogether, and we eventually graduated 18 total. So uh, all the other guys um, I didn't make it through the course, in fact, one of our one of our course mates was killed uh, during the training. Oh my goodness! He suffered from a um, disorientation on his first night solo, and uh, unfortunately, when he realised he's in trouble, he ejected himself. But it, he was too low to survive the ejection. Oh, that's nasty. Yeah. Tell me about your first flight. Uh, well, <laughs> my very first flight um, was in a windshield, which is. Uh, to a young fellow like myself at the time, was big and smelly and ugly, and uh, uh, not really that. Not really when you look at it as a mature person, but uh, uh, piston engine aeroplane, propeller driven, and a tail dragger. So I sat there at an angle to the ground, and we were doing familiarisation rides just for new cadets, and we were doing a hot change. So they'd, they'd take one guy up, come back, you know, spend five ten minutes in the air, then come back. And he'd leave the engine running, he'd jump out, another guy would jump in, 
and go again. So my first flight was uh, after one of our one of my course mates had been up, and uh, unfortunately he had been sick everywhere. So, uh, but they didn't stop the aeroplane. They they just put me in there amongst the uh, the, the triadus and uh, away we went flying. So <laughs> uh, it may have been why I've never been air sick in my life, but because that cured me of the problem, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> but no, I've never been subject to uh, motion sickness, so I think I was going to be sick regardless. Yeah. So that was my first flight. That's about. That's the most I can remember about it, apart from the fact that I thought it was all, uh, the aeroplane was not that easy to handle, basically. It was quite difficult, yeah. So how, how did you um, progress through the Air Force? What aircraft did you fly and like, what kind of things were you doing during that time? Well, the training we got in those days uh, was 15 hours assessment on the seat, on the um, uh, windshield, and that was just to see whether we had the aptitude to press on through the training. Uh, and then we went straight through to the, the Mackie Jet Trainer, which was uh, we used to call the Orange Fanta Can. Uh, great little aeroplane. It was a very good little training platform because uh, it had some great uh, uh, great flying characteristics. For and the big one was that you could. You could actually fly it just just above the stall, and when I mean stall, I mean the aerodynamic stall. In other words, where you lift the point where you lose lift off the wings, and you'd actually do a loop on the on the buffet, what we call the buffet. Uh, so almost stall all the way around through a loop, for example, or a barrel roll. And so from that point of view, it was a great little uh, aeroplane to teach you how to handle an aeroplane at the limits. Um, it was a fairly simple aeroplane, being a jet. Obviously, you didn't have all the all the issues associated with propellers and piston engines. So that was good. So that took 18 months. And I always wanted to be a fighter pilot because I had aspirations to be an astronaut. And in my simple little mind, I thought to be an astronaut, I've got to be a fighter pilot, then I've got to be a test pilot. And then I might be able to get a Guernsey to go into space. But uh, as it turns out, uh, I went to fly DC-3s off pilot course once I got my wings. And, and that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me a chance to mature. And then I kept applying for fighters, and uh, they sent me off uh, after a couple of years flying DC-3s. They sent me off to learn to fly the Mirage 3, so which is the uh, the frontline fighter we had at the time. So that was quite a step, you know, going from uh, 120 knots to uh, uh, Mach 2.5 was quite a quite a big step. <laughs> But the Mirage is a beautiful aeroplane. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I flew for 15 years. Eventually, I did the test pilot training. So I did a lot of test flying in the Mirage as well. Uh, one of my uh, probably notable experiences in the Mirage was uh, uh, we're doing a weapons release from the F- from an F-11. I was flying the chase in Mirage. When we were doing weapons release, we always uh, would take a chase up with for photographic evidence. So you watch the weapon fall off the aeroplane. Um, in slow time once you got back and landed and make sure it didn't do, the, didn't do anything silly, you know, like the weapon uh, at high speed can go, can lose stability and do all sorts of funny things. So uh, we used to fight, have a chase aeroplane over the camera. And also if something did go wrong, we had somebody around who could see uh, what sort of damage might be done to the aeroplane and give some advice on how to, how to recover it. Uh, anyway, uh, during this particular mission, we... Uh, the release point for this weapon was uh, very high speed, 650 knots, uh, and a 45-degree climb. And to get there, we cranked the uh, F-11 up to 730 knots at 100 feet. And I was on the wing in the Mirage, uh, just surfing on his bow wave, 
just like a surfer would on a on a water wave. Uh, his bow wave is so powerful and so strong that I was just sitting there in the mirage, uh, literally surfing. So it was fantastic. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm probably the only guy in the world who's ever surfed at Mac 1.2, 730 knots at 100 feet. <laughs> That's incredible. So you obviously didn't make it to space, but what's the highest altitude that you've flown at? Uh, I'm not sure I should say this, but I I zoomed an F-18 on its very first flight one day uh, to 78,000 feet. Wow, that, so that's about double the the height of a normal air, you know, commercial aircraft cruising altitude. What, what does it look uh, like when you're up at 70, 78,000 feet? Well, it was interesting. Uh, you can see the curvature of the Earth, but you can see that from about 50,000 feet. So I can see the curvature of the Earth, which is nice. But I actually went up there to try and uh, get into the black of sea, the black of space, which I see before in a mirage out of Malaysia up at 60,000 feet. But um, I don't know why. It was just didn't get, get to the black stage. It was all nice and blue. So but the other thing, that was the very first flight. We used to, I did most of the first flights of the Hornet out of the factory at Avalon. And... Uh, on those flights, we'd run them out at in level flight to Mach 1.7 roughly, which is about as fast as they could go, and then take them up to 50,000 feet and do some engine checks at, at high altitude. Uh, so that's what that's why I was zooming up there to altitude anyway. Uh, so once I'd been to, I topped out at 68,000 or whatever it was, no, 78,000, I uh, came back down to 50 and did the, completed the, you know, went on with the test program. So you also flew on the F-18. I believe you had a bit of a scary run-in um, when you were doing a test flight on that. Yeah, at one event, uh, long story, I won't go through the situation, but um, the aeroplane had some handling handling problems at, at 20 degrees angle of attack, which is the angle the wing makes to the air, oncoming airflow, basically. So the manoeuvre was um, in a right-hand turn, uh, pulling about 6.5G to get to 20 degrees angle of attack, and then uh, once we got to those conditions uh, at Mach 0.9, then applying full left R on control to roll out of the turn, uh, the aeroplane rolled through about 30 degrees of bank to the left and then went like a frisbee to the right. So it just went sideways to the right. The, minute, the actual departure from control flight was quite dynamic and quite aggressive. But uh, once it, it had expanded all of its energy, uh, it just wound up... Uh, uh, rotating while inverted, uh, probably at about uh, or six degrees a second. So just doing rotations for quite quickly. It was relatively smooth at that point. And uh, at about 18,000 feet, I thought I should think about jumping out because I thought both fins had separated. Uh, you know, the F-18 has two fins uh, because the manoeuvre, the departure, the sideways departure was quite violent, and I thought the fins might have failed. Anyway, um, I was still at 18,000 feet at that point, so I thought I can wait a while longer before I jump out. And about that point, the aeroplane spent its energy and popped nose high and went like a dart, and we uh, jumped on the controls and recovered. We bottomed out at 12,000 feet. The whole thing took 22 seconds. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so we were descending quite rapidly. Uh, both engines flamed out. But they both relit automatically. So once we got in the controls again, uh, the aeroplane was back to normal flight, basically. 
So you went on in 1995 to become a second officer with Qantas on the 747-400, and then you went on later to be an A330 first officer and then a 747 first officer. I'm hoping that um, in command of those aircraft, you didn't you didn't experience those kind of uh, Gs or those kind <laughs> of uh, those kind of maneuvers. Um, but uh, did you have any sort of uh, hairy flights when you were flying uh, for Qantas with passengers on board? Yeah, not not really. Just a couple of uh, atmospheric events that um, surprised me, and uh, one was uh, in the set, in the A three thirty flying up to Japan. The overhang from a big thunderstorm. You can imagine thunderstorms in the tropics can get climb to seventy thousand feet, so they can be quite significant. But we we're sitting up at thirty eight thousand feet, and uh, I just transferred under this overhang off a thunderstorm, and the atmospheric temperature jumped twenty degrees centigrade. And we're up close to our thrust limits in the uh, 330 at that altitude. The autopilot was driving, so the thrust went to max, and uh, the speed bled because of the temperature. We couldn't didn't have enough thrust to hold our speed, so the speed came right back to minimum speed. And uh, and then after that, we uh, burst out the other side of this under this underneath this overhang, and the temperature came back down to a reasonable body atmospheric temperature and. Uh, we just uh, slowly accelerated back to normal speed and continued on. So that was one event. That was in the A330. Another one was uh, coming out of London in a jumbo. We had max wallet weight, so about 400 tonne at takeoff. And uh, we ran at about 18,000 feet. No, it must be a bit higher than that. About 28,000 feet, we ran to a big jet stream uh, tailwind. So 220 knot jet stream. So instantly we lost all our forward speed, indicated airspeed that is, and the aeroplane struggled again to maintain altitude. Um, the other problem was it was, uh, it was uh, severe turbulence as we entered this jet stream, and it was like shaking the aeroplane like you would a shake a tea towel to, to clear the dust, you know, clear, clear breadcrumbs off it. Uh, so that was quite quite violent. Um, and then we had to get a descent to lower level to try and get our speed back, and we did that and uh, got down to 18,000 feet and then cruised in for about 150 miles over Europe until we could climb again and hopefully, hopefully clear the uh, jet stream. Oh, wow, that must, we have, that must have been quite uncomfortable for the passengers. Uh, when we hit the jet stream, it would have been very uncomfortable, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and they would have all been just going to sleep probably because they just got to the top of climb. So <laughs> See, <laughs> not a very... Not a very pleasant experience for them at all. No. So you, you just climbed up to your initial cruising altitude and then you actually descended 10,000 feet. Did you make an announcement to the passengers at oh, this yeah, point? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And obviously you put the seatbelt signs on and all that sort of stuff, but yeah. Did you have any famous passengers on board or that you know about anyway? Probably did. Um, I once had Kate Sobrano come up to the flight deck. Kate's one of our famous uh, singers, of course. Mm. And uh, we had a good old chat. <laughs> oh, that's nice. During the cruise? Yeah, or... yeah during the cruise. That, that was before all, all the 9-11 issue and mm. the lock, lockdowns, the cockpits and stuff like that, yeah. Mm. So out of the aircraft that you've flown uh, throughout your career, do you have a favourite? Yeah, it's got to be the Mirage 3. Fantastic aeroplane. Um, it was, the reason I think I liked it is because it's a challenge. It's both a mental challenge and a physical challenge. But once you learn to... Um, handle the aeroplane, it was a great machine to fly. It was just, just a lot of fun. And, it, you know, as I said, a challenge. So it was always, you're always busy in the cockpit uh, doing mental gymnastics, trying to buddy, make sure you had enough fuel 
uh, trying to work the radar. Uh, it's one of the few fighters that had, actually had a radar uh, from that era, that is. And it was uh, a manually driven radar, so you spent a lot of time uh, trying to break targets out of the ground clutter on your radar image. So um, it was quite a, that was demanding, especially when you're low level at night. Uh, you know, a thousand feet at night, but he running around high speed trying to work the radar without hitting the water is uh, is quite a challenge. Mm. And that was one of the first flyby wire aircraft, was it? It was, and people don't realise, uh, no, nobody actually knows that, but um, it was an analogue fly-by-wire aeroplane. Normally you'd fly it in uh, mechanical controls that had a system that you could engage called auto-command, and that actually uh, uh, separated your manual controls from the control circuit altogether, and then you flew it uh, through electrical signals uh, down to the electro-hydraulic actuators. Okay. Uh, out of the um, the passenger aircraft of the E-Flu, do you have a favourite out, out of Boeing and Airbus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a that's a vexed question, a loaded question. Um, no, not really. Um, I, I I really enjoyed the Jumbo, uh, and I got to say, the Jumbo was. I know they've all gone now, virtually, but it was the fastest airliner in the world. Now that the Concorde's gone. Um, so all the Airbuses cruise around typically about just under Mach 0.8, 80% of the speed of sound, whereas the Jumbo is quite happy sitting up around 90% of the speed of sound. And uh, it was just a great machine, fantastic aeroplane. So, but I enjoyed the F-330 as well. It was, uh, uh, you know, I just, I just enjoyed it. I, I, because I'd flown the Hornet, I understood fly-by-wire systems. And unfortunately, a lot of people didn't really comprehend the fly-by-wire system in the uh, A330. And the training they got was very poor in that regard. Didn't really, didn't really actually uh, educate us greatly about what fiber wire was doing for you and why it worked. Okay, yeah. The, unfortunately, yeah, a lot of the seven four sevens have retired, but there are still a few flying around. Um, yeah. I'm hoping to find one next month from Singapore to Frankfurt with Lufthansa. They they still flying a few around. Oh, um, okay. Fingers crossed, I can get on that flight. Yeah. But, um, okay. Did you have a favorite? Um, sort of route to fly or a favourite destination? I've always liked Singapore because it's uh, it's just easy. The food's good. You know, it's a good blend of all the Asian cult, uh, cuisines up there. So uh, that was always good. But no, not really. I enjoyed, uh, I guess I enjoyed the long-haul flying, mainly because of the things you see uh, in flight, the atmospheric effects and the, um, what would you call it, the stellar effects that you see for one one example, there was a comet around back in uh, must have been early two thousands, and I was we're coming out of Johannesburg to Sydney, and as we got airborne out of Joburg, we totaled just at sunset basically. Uh, we flew into a dark sky, and this comet filled comet, you know, the head of the comet and the tail of the comet filled the whole side windscreen of the of the jumbo. Wow! And then so we saw it go down below the horizon. And then it came up again uh, about uh, nine hours into the trip as the sun rose. So we got to see the comet all over again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, so that's, they're the sort of things you see. Um, and just cloud formations there. And, you know, for example, another one coming down from Singapore once in the, down, down to Perth in a A330, uh, there's a big, big thunderstorm growing in front of us. And you can see it just growing. 
uh, rapidly, you know. And and all of a sudden, uh, as we were we're getting near the point where we're going to have to divert to go around it, it just disappeared. All the all the the whole bloody uh, cell thunder cell just uh, turned into invisible bloody steam again. So amazing that you see that sort of stuff happen. I certainly don't see that kind of stuff from my office. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately not. I've, I've always been interested in those flights that go like, you know, almost over the South Pole. Obviously you can't actually fly over the South Pole, but things like the Johannesburg to Sydney or the, the flights to Buenos Aires or Santiago, that's a lot of flying, you know, obviously with the Great Circle Route, you fly quite far south. Or almost um, on, on some flights you get a view of the icebergs over Antarctica even. That's a long way from any diversion point. Did you have like a contingency plan if, you know, there was, God forbid, a fire on board or some something happened and you needed to land? <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we always did. We always had somewhere to go, ideally. Um, and, you know, mind you, it would take a long time to get get there probably because uh, there were times out, well, there was one point out in the uh, Sydney-Joburg route where you're 5,000 nautical miles from anywhere to land. So 5,000 nautical miles, even at nine miles a minute, takes a long time to transit. So the, the issue is the aeroplane is designed with redundancies. And the worst thing that could happen would be a hold fire. But even if you had a fire in the uh, cargo holds, they had fire suppression equipment in there. And hopefully they would put the fire out. So uh, if that didn't work, then you're in, in a bit of, bit of strife. And the contingency is just getting on the ground somewhere, uh, and out there would be on the water, of course. Um, and then the problem is surviving, you know, getting out of the aeroplane and surviving after that. But uh, no, it was based on redundancies. You know, the thing had the jumbo had four engines, so you you could lose or three engines and still fly it quite well, not quite comfortably, but you still fly it. Um, and you know, you had other redundancies in in the fire suppression kit. kit uh, in the electrics, in the, all the other systems, there were redundancies. So you could you could have you could actually work wear quite a bit of degradation and still be uh, reasonably safe and sound. So and that was the way they that was the way the system all, uh, sort of rationalised um, the safety issues. And thankfully, I, I cannot think of any incidents where this has actually um, happened. So it's you know, obviously it's you know. Qantas has been flying those routes for years with no issues, so um, I don't mean to scare anybody. And I guess, like, I guess you'd have polar survival kits and other things on board. Uh, yes, you would. If you're going down that far south, you carry that sort of kit on board. Correct. Do you have a favourite air traffic control? Like, I know, I know some pilots, for example, say they really like Heathrow Airport, or like they have a particular favourite. Is is there one that you uh, thought was quite good? Uh, good question. Uh, no, not really. Um, Heathrow were very proficient. Uh, and they're very positive, and that's probably a problem with Australia generally. We we tend to be negative. We always uh, put up barriers rather than say, "Yeah, we can do that." Whereas in uh, in Heathrow or even in America, generally speaking, they'll say, "Yeah, let's go ahead and do that." They may modify their decision afterwards, but at least the first first point is positive. Whereas in Australia, there'll be some sort. Oh no, we better make you orbit because we're not sure what we can do with you. For example, you know, it's just a uh, a subtly different sort of perception of what what's required or what can be done. Yeah, interesting. My last question for you is: What advice you might give to a young person who's thinking today about starting a career in aviation? Oh well, obviously, I'd say go for it. Um, it's it, 
ideally, um, I think the training in the military is probably the best you can get. So if you can um, tolerate going to the military for five or six years, that's a great way to go. Um, otherwise, the GA, general aviation training, costs a lot of money. Uh, it's, a, it's a cutthroat business out there. And to try and get the hours up to get a, a, a better job is uh, very difficult. So, so that's why the, air, the military has an advantage in that regard. Um, but uh, either way, you know, some of the civilian pilots I've come across have been extremely good at, the, at, the, at what they do. Uh, so I've always been very impressed with them. Uh, and some of the military pilots haven't been as competent in some respects as well. So it's interesting that despite their better training and their experience, uh, they don't necessarily adapt to the airline game quite as well. So it depends what you want to do. Um, you know, obviously you can't get to fly the high-performance aeroplanes in the civilian world, so you really got to go to uh, the military for that. If that's what rocks your boat, then that's the way to go. Uh, but if you want to go chase dollars or uh, uh, chase the glamorous, the so-called glamorous life of international flying, then go the airline route. And for you, it's obviously been a very rewarding career. Oh, absolutely, yeah, I can't complain. Uh, didn't make space, but there you go. I, I did a lot of other stuff, and I could tell a lot more worries, but we're at, we uh, don't want to <laughs> belabor the point. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, Ron Hack, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate the opportunity. Would you like help with redeeming your frequent flyer points? Our sister website, Frequent Flyer Solutions, offers a great service called Award Flight Assist. This personalised service makes it easier for you to get where you want to go using your own frequent flyer points. For more information about Award Flight Assist, visit frequentflyer.com.au. Well, in episode 94, that was four weeks ago, I asked uh, if any members would like to share the best airfare or award flight deal that they've been able to take advantage of. And I want to share a couple of comments that people have left on the AFF on air discussion thread. Uh, Goodo says, uh, the latest episode brought back some memories. Good old US uh, dividend miles. Love that program. Had some quirks like rooting rules, but you could often make them work in your favor, especially if you're an aviation geek like me. The first one I did was a basic round trip Melbourne to London in business, which ended up being cheaper to purchase the miles and redeem in business than to buy an economy ticket outright. And after that, I was hooked. Uh, and this person says um, that they book trips like Melbourne, Hong Kong, London, Rome, London, New York, Hong Kong, Melbourne, and various others, all for around 110 or 120,000 miles in business. And you can read the full post on the AFF on air discussion thread. Um, yeah, no, th- thanks for that, um, Goodo. That's um, it's definitely was a good program in its time, and it's a shame that it uh, un- well it did merge into American Airlines Advantage and it's no longer around. And AAA99 says, I would say my favorite deal of all time was when I locked in a $1 airfare in 2010. That was from Christchurch to Wellington on Air New Zealand. This was part of the Air NZ Grab a Seat promo that runs in New Zealand on a daily basis, AAA99 says. For sure, this is not as fancy as a price mistake in business class or a sweet spot redemption, but as a student at the time, I really appreciated being able to get the flight I wanted at that price, and certainly $1 is a very good price. 
Yeah, nice one. I think the cheapest flight that I've ever taken was around $9, and that was with Ryanair, if I remember correctly, from Barcelona to Porto. Although I've had a few Jetstar and Wizz Air flights that were under $20 as well, um, obviously without checked baggage or any of the extras. Well, just before I go, uh, just a quick thanks to the the AFF members that I met in Newcastle last weekend at the AFF um, annual weekend gathering. It was really nice meeting all of you, um, seeing a few people that I've met before and also some new faces. Um, It was a really nice gathering. So thanks to those who attended for making it such a great event. AFF will be putting on another weekend gathering next year. I believe it may be in Launceston, but uh, I don't know if that's been officially announced yet. So keep an eye on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum and in particular the Meetings and Social Events Forum for more on that. With COVID now behind us, AFF events are starting to come back, um, some of the member-run events as well. So if you'd like to meet some other AFF members in person, share some travel stories or tips, and you get some of the best tips at these social meetups, which don't make it onto the website or even onto this podcast... So definitely keep an eye out on the meetings and social events forum now that that, those events are starting to come back. Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Ron Hack, and thank you very much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes. Here you'll also find a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you're welcome to discuss the podcast or ask me a question to be answered in a future episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd take just a minute to review AFF On Air on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform to receive every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, safe travels. Listener.